The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the fourth Doctor story, The Deadly Assassin. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Cory Stika. Hey, Father Cory. How's it going? Folks, be sure to write an Apple podcast review and share the podcast with your friends. Help us grow our community of Doctor Who fans. and. Reach more listeners. That's the the number one way this podcast grows is by you sharing it with others and letting other people know about it. Uh, I want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network you are definitely sure to enjoy called Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. You can find that wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash mysterious. So we are talking about this fourth Doctor story called The Deadly Assassin. Jimmy, can you give us a recap of that? Before we get into the discussion. This week, having been summoned to Gallifrey and having dropped off Sarah Jane, the companionless fourth doctor arrives on his home planet for our first adventure set on Gallifrey. As he's going there, he receives a vision of the Time Lord president being assassinated. He tries to stop the assassination, but fails. Since the president didn't name a successor before he died, an election must now be held. The doctor is suspected of the crime himself and is almost sentenced to execution, but he invokes a provision of the Time Lord Constitution that allows him to run for president. He and Chancellor Goth are the only two candidates. Evidence emerges that the master, now in a decayed state, is behind the assassination, and he has an ally on the High Council. In episode three, the doctor goes into the Matrix, and so the plot hits a wall of solid asbantium, a substance 400 times stronger than diamond, and it feels like it will take the doctor four and a half billion years to punch his way through Mm -hmm. it. So nothing of much significance happens in episode three. It's all running around and let's torture the doctor games for basically the whole runtime. The only notable thing that happens is that the Doctor learns the Master's ally on the High Council is Chancellor Goth himself, and the Doctor defeats him in the Matrix. When the plot finally resumes in Episode 4, Goth has been fatally injured and dies. The Master fakes his death and then reemerges to enact his ultimate plan. He's at the end of his regeneration cycle, so he wants to use the artifacts carried by the President to regenerate himself and unleash the power of the Eye of Harmony black hole and destroy Time Lord civilization and control the universe. The Doctor prevents him from doing this, but the Master escapes. Ultimately, he and the Doctor both leave and head back out into the universe. The end. That is an accurate representation of what happens, including Episode 3. So a couple of notable things about this story is... Uh, it's the first time in Classic Who that we have a whole story where the Doctor has no companion, mm-hmm. which I guess was a they were testing it out as this idea that maybe the Doctor doesn't need to have someone tagging along. Well, it's, I don't know if they were seriously testing that. They may or may not have been. But Tom Baker, for a time, did not want a companion uh, mm-hmm. after Sarah Jane left. 
and that caused some tensions between him and the next companion, Leela. He also talked about having like maybe a talking cabbage that he could <laughs> he could have as a companion, if I recall correctly. They got a robot dog. That was close enough, right? Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah. What they found in this, though, is they gave, they had to give him a bunch of surrogate companions. Um, that's essentially what uh, Castellan Spandrel and Controller Ingen are, is their surrogate companions. Right. I mean, the doctor needs to talk to someone to exposit what's going on for the sake of the audience. The companion has always kind of been that audience stand in. So mm-hmm. uh, like there's that one point in the very beginning before he's met these Gallifreyan time Lords that he's kind of talking to himself. And so mm-hmm. that's how we get our exposition when we would normally, he'd be telling this stuff to a companion. So it did seem kind of odd and strange. Yeah. This is also our first adventure set on Gallifrey. We've had glimpses of Gallifrey before, mm-hmm. um, beginning with uh, the very last episode of um, of the War Games with the Second Doctor, and then we saw it briefly in the Three Doctors, mm-hmm. for example, in the Third Doctor's time. But this is the first time we've we, we've spent a whole adventure on Gallifrey, and in this. Uh, in this story, Robert Holmes, who is an excellent writer for Who, um, establishes bunches of new stuff yep. of, about Time Lord culture. This is our introduction of the Matrix. Mm-hmm. It's which is, I don't mind them having a supercomputer, but I don't like the holodeck aspect of it because it's a holodeck. Mm-hmm. Also, this introduces the Time Lord chapters, like the Doctor is a member of the Pridonian House. It introduces the headdresses and robes that they wear on ceremonial occasions. It introduces Barusa. It introduces Rassilon. Mm-hmm. Omega had, or Omega had previously been mentioned, and we'd even seen him, but this is the first time we get Rassilon. We have uh, the first mention of the Shabogans. We're not really told what they are, but they're apparently some kind of fringe group from a Time Lord perspective, and they will come back in later as sort of the pre-Time Lord Gallifreyans. And so like in Chris Chibnall's time, Tecteyun is a Shibogan. We also get the 12 limit regeneration or the 12 regeneration limit in this, uh, which is just to explain the master's desperation. That's its function in the plot. That's the only reason they introduce it. it. Interestingly, Tom Baker is the fourth doctor that we've seen on mm-hmm. screen having adventures, but already in the brain of Morbius, in the mind duel with Morbius, we'd seen another set of incarnations that preceded William Hartnell, who were the who were known as the Morbius doctors. And there were eight of them. And so mm-hmm. if you add eight and four that would make Tom Baker the 12th incarnation of the Doctor, and he would only have one more regeneration. He would regenerate at the end of Tom Baker into the 13th Doctor, and then they'd have to deal with this issue. But since they decided to later ignore the Morbius Doctors, they were able to put that issue off until Matt Smith. Mm. Right. Then they right. brought them back in, and it all makes <laughs> sense now. <laughs> it was like they fixed it. Yeah, so now... Now, the, there is one thing about the third episode, though, of this, is it's probably one of the most controversial episodes of up to that time of the of uh, classic Who, 
the, the closing scene, which has been cut, which was actually cut almost right after it was aired, basically, uh, was a scene of the doctor being drowned. And you actually see Tom Baker being held underwater, you know, apparently drowning. Yeah. Okay. And it was such a traumatic uh, a scene that uh, uh, a woman by the name of Mary Whitehouse, who was the head of their, uh, their uh, basically their decency board, uh, Nat- National Viewers and Listeners Association, raised a yeah. huge stink. Actually, uh, uh, the, the, the uh, showrunner at the time got fired, basically, because mm-hmm. of that scene. Oh, wow. Philip Hinchcliffe, yeah. He yeah, didn't Phillip come back next season. And, and, he, um, and like I said, they, after they aired it, they just cut, they cut and threw away the tape, the, the film of it. But they, you've since restored it. They actually restored it shortly after from uh, other footage. But for like, home if video. You watch, yeah, for home video. But if you watch BritBox, it's not there. The last scene yeah. is you see Goff, you know, you, you're finished, Doctor. You're finished. And then it and cuts it. to credits. Oh, okay. But that's, in the original, it says you finished, <laughs> and then you see the doctor underwater. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the start of the fourth, you see him briefly underwater, and then he comes out. So they felt it was too violent to see the doctor too being violent, held too underwater. Traumatic. Yeah. 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 Okay. Mary Mary Whitehouse was she's sort of like a British equivalent of Jerry Falwell. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a, she was a citizen who, you know, was concerned about television decency and the idea of having a children's show graphically showing a realistic, now this is not a cartoon, mm-hmm. a, a, a live action, realistic looking man being drowned was over the line for her. And so she led a campaign against it. It led to Philip Hinchcliffe's contract not being renewed. And, um, and it, it, that put a damper on some of the horror that they were starting to introduce mm-hmm. into the show. It didn't, because they had this kind of gothic horror, this is sort of hammer horror light for children, um, mm-hmm. era, which I think is great, but, and it, and it doesn't completely go away. There are things like in uh, uh, in next season's The Talons of Wang Chiang mm-hmm. that are pretty strong. Mm-hmm. Um, they're pretty, you know, horror-y, but, uh, but it did get toned down somewhat. I mean, certainly The Decayed Master is pretty, yeah. uh, especially for the time, even now, like it's pretty, you know, gross uh, for, yeah. ki- for little kids. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I could see that having, yeah. So yeah. doctor getting that reputation for the, that Gothic horror for kids idea. Yeah. And, and he is, so yeah, I have my notes, new horror master, mm. um, yep. because he's all burned and decayed and stuff like that. This version of him appears only twice. Um, it, it will, uh, this version of the master will occur later again at the end of Tom Baker's run. Uh, now in this, um, in this episode, he's played by the actor Peter Pratt, who was known for doing a lot of doily cart theater productions. Mm. Um, and so he has this kind of over the top, you know, theater vibe to him. Mm. He will be replaced in, in, uh, the keeper of Trocken by the actor Jeffrey Beavers. Um, and, uh, who incidentally was married to the actress who played Liz Shaw. Oh, mm. wow. But unfortunately, Peter Pratt didn't 
survive long enough to do a lot of big finish audio, but Jeffrey Beavers has. Right. And he, he is an excellent master for yeah. big finish. We really need to to do his the one that he wrote uh called I Am the Master, okay. which is, is really nicely done. We did one with him. Where yes, he was, we did yeah. him him in the vault. The vault, yep. right, right. The uh the um I was gonna say the the way that the master appears in this one, you know, he's so this is sort of the it's it's not a regeneration of um the Roger Delgado master, I assume. It's just a he's it's, been damaged. It's ambiguous. Um it's unclear whether this is a damaged version of Roger Delgado or whether this is a separate um incarnation post Roger right. Delgado. And they've never clarified that on screen. So if you look in other sources like novels and things like that and reference books, sometimes it's considered to be Roger Delgado decayed and sometimes it's considered to be a separate incarnation. But there was some kind of accident that damaged him. And in the spinoff literature, even when he gets a new body, that body inevitably reverts to the decayed state. So he's mm. for a long time he's just until new who basically he's just running to find new bodies because he's burning through them as they go decayed. Interesting. Right. I I didn't feel like this master didn't feel like the Roger Delgado master. Let me put it that it way. It felt do, yeah. No. More like the John Sim frankly. It was a little, you know, mm-hmm. off off kilter, off balance, you know. Well, I, I think when your body when your body decays to that state, that's going to probably affect your <laughs> mental well-being as well. That's true. And as we mentioned before, the Roger Delgado wasn't available because he had died in a car accident, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you mentioned the 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 all the elements of this episode. It's interesting because we kind of watched a kind of sequel to this story recently when we t- did the one where Leela departs. I forget the name of that one. Um, yep. The Invasion we, of Time. The Invasion and, of Time. Yeah, it's yeah. timey-wimey on this show, so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, and so it's interesting, we saw, so this is how the Doctor became president of Gallifrey, and this is how, uh, you know, all of these things, elements that we see in that are introduced at this point, a couple of years before. Yeah, because he was the only, can- he and, and Goth were the only candidates in the election, so if Goth died, since Goth died, the Doctor wins by default, but... <laughs> Cardinal Barusa shoes him off Gallifrey so quickly that he doesn't take <laughs> office. Right, right. And, uh, you know, they, they talk about the Matrix. I w- sometimes wonder, did the, ma- the makers of the movie, The Wachowskis, did they get the idea for The Matrix from Doctor Who? I don't know if it's ever been said, but it's certainly kind of similar. It, like That's a little you- bit different, though. I mean, the, the Matrix is, you know, it's a computer system that generates the the world they're in, whereas this matrix is it's the stored memories and uh, basically neural neurological or pathways, pathways of the brain um, yeah. that neuron. Yeah. Pathways of neurons in the brain that create this world. It's, it's, it's a little bit different. Yeah. Trying still to get though, they're, they're living in a virtual world in their heads when they're connected to all these other minds. I don't know. It just, it well, just that's, and that's feels, a concept that's been around even before this. So I guess, I guess, I guess it's kind what, of interesting. What I thought was interesting is we it, it, they only really do it in in this story, but you know we're told that the Matrix is the stored memories of all the Time Lords, 
and we actually see the process because that's how the doctor gets into it. He's just right. not dying. But apparently, what they what they normally do is, as you're just about to die, they bring you down to uh, Coordinator Ingen, and he lays you on a table and puts you on a and you're unconscious, and he puts you on a table and puts a thing on your head. And then it runs an electric current through your head, which will be painful if you're not unconscious. <laughs> yeah. And 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 makes a copy of your memories and then you die. And so it doesn't kill you, but you die. And mm-hmm. so it's a little I you know, I'd forgotten that that's the that they that they explained what's happening to the doctor as this is just what normally happens to a dying time lord. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, oh, that's pretty creepy. I'd assume they had like a radio implant or something that, you know, well, records and, your memories as you're dying. Yeah. Well, and eventually at Trial of the Time Lord, they explained that TARDISes have basically recording devices that do the same function as right. the Time Lord is out and about. Right, right. And that's how and that's, they were able to get, get, the, get the footage of everything that happened in Trial mm-hmm. of the Time Lord. We seen much of the Matrix in New Who? I don't think we have. Well, they've so seldom gone to Gallifrey, but we do see it in the Timeless Children. Mm-hmm. Right, that's true. Right, 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 right. Okay, now I remember. And and just like here, the Master has access to it. It calls it his yep. domain in mm-hmm. in this uh, in this story. You know, one thing besides the companionless Doctor in this one, the another new element they introduce is, is an opening narration in Crawl, where mm-hmm, Tom Baker mm-hmm. narrates the opening. Uh, I don't think they ever did that again. It was kind of weird. They've they've done similar things. They notably do it in New Who uh, periodically. Stephen Moffat would occasionally do things like that. Oh uh, yeah. But it it's very rarely used in in old who. I don't know that this is the only occurrence of it, but it's it is very rare. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, by the way, and speaking, in case somebody asks, this was before Star Wars. This was two year. This was a year before yeah. Star Wars. So yeah, yeah, yeah. This this is where he got that idea. Oh no. <laughs> also, speaking of which things uh, come before other things and the names of things, uh, we have Cart Ca- uh, Castellan Spandrel in this now Castellan is uh, it, it's a term from medieval Europe. It, it refers to the guy who's in charge of running a castle. And uh, so, I don't know, maybe Castellan Spandrel is in charge of running a tower on Gallifrey because they keep talking about th- this particular tower. But his name, Spandrel. Okay, Spandrel is a term in architecture and biology. It refers to the sort of triangular curved space between the top of an arch and the rectangular frame that it's set in. So if you imagine a circle mm-hmm. inside of a, of, of a square, the parts outside the circle but within the square are the spandrels. Mm. And spandrels are not very useful you know they don't play an architectural role supporting anything they're just there and they're blank space so people to architects tend to fill them up with designs so they're they're like little artistic things that don't really play a function and that led to their adoption as a term in biology the uh, evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould noticed that, hey, we've got some features of living organisms 
that are kind they don't kind of kind of don't play a function anymore. They've lost their evolutionary function, but they're still there. And so they're sort of decorative. They're kind of like spandrels. And so he he dubbed these biological features spandrels. And I I looked to see whether this episode was written after Stephen Jay Gould coined that term in biology and it wasn't this precedes it so um so uh robert holmes is drawing on exclusively on the architectural use of spandrel but it's still kind of like a decorative useless thing <laughs> which is funny cuz he's probably the most sympathetic active. character inactive yeah. you know of yeah. all of them you know he's the one that pretty much immediately says okay doctor i'll follow your lead right and does right He's he's the smartest of them all, you know, that in following the doctor's lead. Except so he's the, pretty cruel to his guards, especially the one one guy well, but Hillwood, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who well, Hillwood seems not all that competent. But <laughs> um, <laughs> it starts with the doctor having this vision of himself assassinating the Time Lord president. What is that from? I didn't I, I must have missed why he was having this vision unless they didn't it, tell the, us the master they didn't tell us but the master well i they, they sort of did. did the master planted it in his mind in fact they later wow. it goes by quickly in dialogue but they later establish that it was the master who summoned tom baker to gallifrey mm-hmm. it wasn't the time lord council he was not expected the okay. master wanted him here for this and sent a fake message yeah they, they uh, said that they said that the, the matrix, the purpose of the matrix is to predict events, and the matrix had predicted this, and the master had basically beamed it to the doctor. And intercepted it, so the council didn't know about the attempt. Right. Okay. So, so, yes, it was the master who broke up Tom Baker and his girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, there's, a, there's a scene, with, you know, once the doctor, where uh, Spandrel and Engen are reviewing the doctor's, um, his, his record, his criminal record. And is pardoned by the CIA, the Celestial Intelligence Agency. So I thought mm-hmm. that was interesting. So he's got a criminal record, which I guess has been established with the second doctor, right? That was the criminal yep. record, yeah. that trial? Okay. And the banishment mm-hmm. to Earth, that's what they're talking about. Okay. And then um, there was a nice moment. So there's this reporter, basically, for the public register video, right? The, he's the TV reporter. Runcible is his name. And he's apparently was a student of Cardinal Barusa at the Time Lord Academy or, or whatever. Yep. And he's trying to interview Barusa as, and says, and Barusa says to him, you had ample opportunity to ask me questions during your misspent years at the Academy. You failed mm-hmm. to avail yourself of the, of the opportunity then, and it is too late now. Good day. And what's up? Yeah. Barusa is a total jerk in this. <laughs> he yeah. does come off as kind of a jerk. Uh, yeah. That's very uh, supercilious. Although, yeah. you know, sometimes you, you want to see politicians. Talking to the reporters. <laughs> yeah, good day. <laughs> Runcible is um, a, a deliberately lightweight character. The, when the doctor mm-hmm. recognizes him on the TV, he's like, "Oh, Runcible the fatuous." <laughs> yeah, right. Um, the doctor also has an interesting ruse to get out, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But he, you know, so his his TARDIS has shown up. And it's not expected, and so guards are rushing towards it, and he says to himself, because he has no companion, I've got to get past them and warn the president. And so he starts assembling a hookah pipe 
Mm-hmm. And he he says he says to himself, "Cash and carry Constantinople." <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> where where he bought it, yeah. Um, and and so he lights the pipe, and he's got it set next to a essentially a, a mock up of himself. Was mm-hmm. it's really his hat and coat on a chair mm-hmm. with his with his back turned to the door? So they'll think that's the doctor sitting right there. Um, you know, smoking a hookah, and they do, and so he's able to sneak around the other side of them. And so I thought it was an interesting ruse. And I was thinking, so this is like 1975 when this is made, and mm-hmm. he's like, okay, cash and carry Constantinople. I guess you would have to maybe go to some rather, unless you're in a major city, you would have to go to some rather extreme lengths to purchase a hookah at the time. You couldn't just <laughs> yeah. go on the internet. Um, but I'm like. Okay, yesterday I was down at the Middle Eastern market after mass, and they had a whole rack of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I guess in the, the, the early 70s, late 60s, hookahs had a whole different <laughs> sense of, about them, at least in uh, the, the West, you know, outside of Turkey. Yeah, um, yeah so he, they, they take the, the TARDIS, they store it in a museum, for whatever reason, especially, I guess, because well, it's old. because it's a mu- museum piece. <laughs> yeah. It's like the last of that model left. And that's where the doctor emerges and steals some cardinal robes that are being displayed in the museum and then switches with some other uh, Time Lord so that he can get into the Panopticon. That's the basically like the the chamber, the government chamber. Um, and he goes up into the gallery and picks up a gun that's there and and looks through the scope, the you know, the site at the president with it. Which is why would you do that? Because then someone else ends up shooting the president, and so we have a presidential assassination with a second gunman. Yeah, you know. yeah. So the they eventually clarify this. It is not clear as it's happening, but he's he's reenacting what he saw in his vision because he did see himself with the gun and apparently shoot the president. Okay. Um, he he runs up into you know the balcony area where there's the TV, the tv camera which is ridiculously huge <laughs> i guess time lord television includes way more than just visual data for an advanced yeah. civilization yep and he he finds the gun which is a, a a rifle and he it's a fancy rifle with a with a transparent plastic hilt and stuff but he he picks up the rifle and what he's doing and this is a bad idea but what he's doing is scanning the area around the president for the for the actual assassin. He's going to try to shoot the actual assassin. And the actual assassin is standing right next to the president and does kill him. What he doesn't know, what Tom the fourth doctor doesn't know is that the sights on the rifle have been skewed, so he will miss. And um, they later find where his staser bolt impacted a wall of the mm-hmm. panopticon. But if you think about this, you're trying to stop an assassination. You run up, you see a gun. You've already seen yourself in vision apparently shoot the president. <laughs> Maybe if you point the gun at the president, it will just go off. <laughs> right. you know? So this isn't the best idea, but that's what he's doing. Yeah. And that's kind of what they imply in, in the footage where he's surprised when it goes off. Yeah. That he that it just it went off because he was holding it. Right. So, you know, they see him standing there with the gun, they grab him, 
I have to say, Time Lord Society here is is there's very little justice we've seen like, mm-hmm. between this, the trial of a Time Lord, the second Doctor's trial. You know, so they decide. Well, now we have to have his execution after, right after the trial. We have to do that right away now. Like, like we've yeah. already determined he's guilty, but we have to have the trial. Um, well, and, and we'll extract his confession using torture on top yeah. of it. Yeah, they actually <laughs> torture him as he's in the cage being held up, you know, yeah. hands over his head, you know. This is not a just society. <laughs> no, um, and and part of that is Robert Holmes's kind of subversive anti- establishment thing (laughs) he had Um, that going on yeah (laughs) yeah but it's it's also partly um they i think they partly want to explain why the doctor would run away you know if if his people were so perfect why would he ever leave so they can't be that perfect we know they're non-interventionists and so if they're imperfect non-interventionists that's going to point you towards sort of byzantine intrigues and internal Mm -hmm. problems right and so, you know, that's a, a reasonable reading on the Time Lords. But yeah, they do abs they totally torture him. Right. Uh, yeah. they do try to provide an explanation for why they want the trial so fast. And there's two real explanations. One of them, the real explanation is that Chancellor Goth is the assassin, and so he wants to do in Tom Baker so that he's in the clear. Oh, yeah, we caught the assassin, we executed him, it's all done. Yeah. The other reason, the reason that Goth gives to the others is I'm probably going to be elected president since at the time he was the only one running. Mm -hmm. And consequently, uh, if he's still alive when I take office, I will have to make the choice of either pardoning my predecessor's assassin, which would not look good, or having my first act of office be an execution, which would not be an auspicious way to start my reign. And so he wants to avoid the dilemma by having the having it all sorted out before the election occurs. And mm-hmm. it's at that point Tom Baker invokes his constitutional right to run for office and not have his campaign impeded. And then Bar- Goth is informed by Bruce, I think, that yeah. that this proceeding must be suspended until after the election. I'm going to guess they closed that loophole after all of this. <laughs> well, maybe, but maybe, but Goth says he wants to, he says at one point, I'm going to have to talk with so-and-so about changing uh, that rule, about modifying it. <laughs> so um, eventually the the doctor discovers the cameraman who was supposed to be manning that camera position. And has he's been, been turned into a Ken doll. <laughs> he's, yeah. com- he's been and compression stuffed shrunk. In the camera. And stuffed in the camera. Um, the other Time Lords don't know about the Master at this point. He's unknown. Yeah, this is weird. Um, they, they, the Doctor tells them it's the Master, and, and they do a computer search. They do a record search, and they come back and they say, no Time Lord has ever taken that appellation. And I'm thinking two things. Well, number one, what about the Time Lord that showed up in the very first Roger Delgado episode? to warn uh, John Pertwee that (laughs) the Master was on Earth and might show up. Apparently, they knew about him then, but they talk in this about the Master's data record has been wiped it's or Mm. removed from the record. So maybe that happened after 
the John Pertwee era. Right. Number two, I'm thinking, well, if if they don't know him by the name of the master, just tell him his real name. You knew him as a kid. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't end up happening. Yeah. And his civilian identity records could have been lifted, too. Sure. Mm. Yeah. And, and of course, the Beatrix is unhackable. That's un- impossible. Yeah. Yes, it's always well, the impossible. Well, it's just like the, the, the idea of erasing the, this type of record of this type of database is impossible unless you've got these super mathematical skills. And, of course, the master has those. So, yes. I mean. Mm-hmm. As does the doctor, of course. As does the doctor, yep. We have to. So, um, so that's when the doctor goes inside the Matrix. And so this is the things he yeah, encounters. And the, it, the Matrix <laughs> turns out to be a rock quarry filled up with stock footage of alligators. Yes, and it's Westworld. Yeah. <laughs> and later it's, a, later it's a botanical garden. So we have alligator yep. samurai, crazy surgeons, a World War I doughboy, runaway trains, a giant bird egg, for some reason, that he steps mm-hmm. in, a scary clown, an attacking biplane, uh, a big game hunter, and a very unrealistic spider. <laughs> Just for just just for kicks, um, yeah. I, just, I I wrote it all down because I was like, this is a bizarre sequence that we've well, got I, here. I like the train too. It wasn't even like a full size train. It was <laughs> like a model, not really a model. It was more like a you would Little use engine. more for like mine carts. Yeah, yeah. Like you'd see the kids it's a scale park. train. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I missed the spider. I missed yeah. the spider. I I did like the egg. I don't know it was a bird egg, but I liked the egg when he steps in. It's yeah, it's big and weird. Um, but I missed the spider. I, I at some point in episode three, I started multitasking and doing other stuff because I know <laughs> yeah. nothing is going to happen in the plot. Well, the spider had no. It was of no consequence. Like he was hiding in a bush, and the big game hunter Goth was you know stalking him up the hill, and then you see the spider on this big web. This it was like a Halloween decoration. It was not at all scary. Mm. And it's there. And then it kind of crawls down and walks away while Tom Baker starts chewing on the leaves of, of the oh, bush. I, I saw him chewing on the leaves. I missed the spider. Yeah, <laughs> It was very bizarre. Uh, I saw it in the, in the transcript. So that might be why I saw it. It was kind of there and not. Um, so then the hunter tries to poison a pool of water because the doctor has had no water inside mm. the matrix. Um, but I'm looking at it going, the doctor, the, doctor must, the, be- the doctor must have diabetes or something if he's got to drink that often. <laughs> well, also, he'd be crazy to drink out of that disease-ridden <laughs> pool of water. Yeah. It was gross. I mean, you don't need poison to kill him. You just drink that water. Well, and then he uh, eventually slurps out of a little puddle in, inside of a depression in the mud, basically. Yeah, yeah which is... Um, I hope Tom Baker, the actor, didn't really drink from that. <laughs> Or they yeah. prepared it ahead of time with you know special water, yeah, and special sanitized dirt. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. exactly. Although he is very clever, he finds the poison bottle that Goth has discarded, which was sloppy. <laughs> like hit, well, I yeah, he just throws bottles. it on the ground after he's done with it. Yeah, as a nice marker for the doctor to find. But he ends up making a poison dart out of it, which was mm-hmm. clever. Like he found a little reed and made a blow dart out of it. So that was clever. And then, and so eventually, as you say, eventually he escapes from the Matrix, um, and we find out that Goth is the Master's henchman. The uh, the Doctor ends up, well, does the Doctor kill Goth, or is Goth die just as a consequence? So, the Doctor injures Goth in the Matrix, mm-hmm. and that pops Goth out of the Matrix. 
And so he's laying on this table talking to the master who wants him to go back in and kill the doctor. And he's like, this isn't working. And so the the master decides to try to do something to the Matrix that will kill the doctor. And Goth is like, hey, you're about to kill me too. Yeah. And the master says, I have no time for you. <laughs> and he proceeds to do some operation to torture Tom Baker in the Matrix which doesn't end up killing him, but it does end up mortally wounding Goth. Right. And so Goth is just laying there on the table in the process of dying, and the master decides to drug himself with a ridiculously modern insulin syringe. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, I, I I was thinking, well, if they showed us a futuristic syringe, maybe they think the kids in the audience won't know what it is. But <laughs> right. it's yeah. like, okay, that's just an insulin syringe with a little bit of Kool-Aid in it. <laughs> he and, probably just borrowed it from a cast member, you know, somebody on the the, the staff or something. <laughs> right. You know, oh, we need somebody to show this him injecting himself. Oh, here, this will work. We'll just borrow this for a second. <laughs> yeah, but it's but he injects himself with some kind of neuro, uh, not neurotoxin, but neuro neuro simulates death. Yeah, it's paralyzing to, to agent or something. Paralyzing. Like that, yeah. It's yeah to stop or slow down his heart so much that they will think he's dead. Right. And he just sits there waiting for the drug to wear off, paralyzed. <laughs> and meanwhile, they come in and they talk to Goth, and Goth dies on him. Yeah. Speaking of the master, like the, this, this they have a mask on the actor, and it's got these creepy lidless eyes, like mm-hmm. the eyes have been burned off or whatever. And he, so he, cannot, he can't blink. That would drive me crazy. He can't blink. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and in the process of like, trying to kill the doctor in the Matrix, the, the master damages it to a point where Spandrel and Engen have to make this choice. Do we save the doctor, but let the, the, the matrix be destroyed and lose all of these memories. And Spandrel makes the pro-life mm-hmm. choice. He says, uh, you know, he's alive. Those are just de- memories of dead people. I'll take the living person over the, the dead mm-hmm. memories. Uh, so I thought that was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. That he, he is it. But it smokes and fills up the room with all this smoke as it's going through things. The doctor wakes up and says, the first thing he says is, do you mind? This is a non-smoking compartment. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was really good. That was a classic Tom Baker. Um, This is about when the uh, goth, as he's dying, explains, you know, he monologues about what's going on. Yeah. And And he answers a question that I had written in my notes. Why shoot a resigning president? Yes. You know, because you're not going to stop him from making any further decisions. The only thing that occurred to me was that, well, he was supposed to name a successor. Mm-hmm. And that would be the only reason to kill a... I mean, they mentioned personal grudge, but it, Tom Baker says, I never met the man. And why would you do it as he's resigning? You know, you could kill him anytime. Um but if he's supposed to name a successor on his resignation day and you kill him before he does, then that would be a motive for for assassination, to stop him from naming somebody. And since Goth was going to apparently going to succeed him based on everyone's guess, now he had, the president had said he had a list of names for honors for for resignation day and there were some names that were going to surprise them and then as he's dying tom baker asked him the question why kill him when he's about to resign and goss says he told me i wasn't going to be a successor it was going to be right. somebody else right right so he gets, has the motive 
And this is where we also get the reveal about the master's motive of no more regenerations and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so Barusa, who seems to kind of be the power behind the throne, he's the real uh, mm-hmm. force behind things. Um, he wants to hide Goth's involvement in the oh, master's yeah. plans mm-hmm. to take over and make Goth into a martyred hero because then there would be you know, people would be panic in the streets and be scandal. We can't have that. Um, and um, and he the, wants to disfigure the master even more. Right, he's, right. Like, he's pretty disfigured now, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not sure it's going to be much use, but okay. Take him uh, away and shoot him in the face with a staser. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you need to do that, but if that's what you want, okay. This is more of Robert Holmes's cynicism about, yes, yeah. about the upper class coming in. Yeah, there was also a line where he says... Um, about, about, about them not telling the truth about history. Yeah, like... Um, only in mathematics we will find truth uh, mm-hmm. was the yep. the saying that he used to say um uh, you know and so you know kind of calling up barusa as a cynic and a, a politician so the master's been playing dead you know cuz obviously this is wrapped up too quickly <laughs> we still got to mm-hmm. half an episode We've to got go 20 minutes of runtime left <laughs> yeah. yeah so he played dead to get into the vault and get at the relics of rassilon which we have this interesting explanation that the relics are not merely ceremonial, but they actually played a role in Rassilon's grabbing of the Eye of Harmony, which is a black hole. The right, eye. yeah. yeah. So basically, there are two relevant relics in this. Uh, one of them is the Sash of Rassilon, and if you're wearing that, it will protect you from the black hole. And the second is the Key, which is a, a ceremonial rod. It's, it's kind of short. It looks like it's maybe three feet long. And that will let you control the black hole. Mm-hmm. The sash looks an awful lot like a uh, Archbishop's pallium. By the yeah, way. yeah, very <laughs> similar. There's, there's a lot of there's a lot of the the garb in this that matches you know some Catholic liturgical stuff. wear. Yeah. So, yeah, well, I mean, they call them cardinals, so yeah, it, look, it looks like a pallium made of little sandbags. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. it's like a weeded blanket pallium. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, my 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 son would probably love that. So <laughs> he loves weeded. <laughs> Speak, speaking of the, the Eye of Harmony, they've got another inconsistency here where uh, the Castellan says, well, that's a, that's a, a myth. That's a legend. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like, uh, dude, this is your nuclear power source. This is your, this is your power plant. This is what powers uh, Gallifreyan society. Right. Yeah. And it's stored underneath the Panopticon. Panopticon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So. Uh, in, a, in a big black monolith. Right. Mm-hmm. Connected with um, these hoses that are connected that are stabilizing it somehow, which the master starts disconnecting so that he can access it. Um, And the doctor, you know, obviously the last second, the doctor gets them reconnected before all, you know, hell breaks loose and all that sort of thing. But he destroys half the city and thousands are dead. I mean, this is a major disaster for Gallifrey. Mm -hmm. Uh, The doctor also warns the master that the, and this logic may or may not be accurate. Because the sash may not have been designed to protect you from a staser bolt. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, notice the Star Trek influence. We have stasers, stasers instead of phasers. Yep. Yeah. Yes. But he tells the master, don't think that sash is going to protect you because the president was wearing it when he was assassinated. And so whatever function it performed in the past, it's obviously been damaged. Mm-hmm. Right. But it is doing something. They later establish that it's not completely inert. Right. Yes. So Barusa now has got to figure out a way to explain this latest disaster of half the city being destroyed and 
how, what will we say? And the doctor says, well, you don't, you'll have to adjust the truth again. What about subsidence owing to a plague of mice? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and Barusa is very, you know, condescending to the doctor and, and is shooing him off Gallifrey. But then as the doctor is leaving, he turns to him and says, doctor, nine out of 10. <laughs> yes. Nine out of you know, ten. Well, you know the the funny part is the doctor's like, "Well, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. I'll be glad to go, sir." You know, and he, yeah. And he, it seems like he's being you know sarcastic, but then when he yeah. says nine out of ten, Doctor Grins, you know, just oh, thank you, static of this wonderful grade <laughs> he just got. You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and we have also this discussion of how the master could have survived, where you know the doctor mm-hmm. dis- discusses. Oh, he's not not necessarily dead. You know, there's the, these ways that he could have survived and gone off. And he basically fell into a big crack when the floor opened up. Yeah, exactly. Um, did he? And he fell in wearing the the wearing sash. The sash. So yeah. that's gone. Did he leave behind the key? I he, forget. He had stuck that he, into he a hole in the floor. Right. That's right. Right. So, um, but then we see the sash later when at the the Leela episode. Anyways, okay. In the vision of time. Right. Right. That's right. It's it's back. Cool. All right. Any other thoughts on this episode, Father Corey? So the Goth found the master almost dead and found him on Tursurus, which yes. is a planet we see later, Curse of the Fatal Death. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Which is the title of the Curse of the Fatal Death was also obviously a play on Playoff. the deadly assassin. It's the other kinds of assassin, <laughs> the not so deadly, the fatal death. Yeah. No, it's, it's, <laughs> there's no definite article. The Curse of Fatal Death. Right, right. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Fatal death, right. <laughs> um, and then I, I got k- kind of kick out of the Stazer. It basically looked like they took the receiver, the bottom part of an AR-15, and just tacked uh-huh. some stuff on top of it. <laughs> right, right. I mean, even like the little, small, like 10-round clip sticking out of it. Yes, yeah. They did not spend a lot of time designing uh, <laughs> unique props for Doctor Who. That is that is for sure. Not like like Star Trek or other um american a lot of american sci-fi shows they were very much about props and you know making it look very yeah. different whereas uh the british productions they, and then they just grab stuff out of the prop room just <laughs> kind of one small fun, funny thing that you know with the newer resolution and everything and clarity of tv stay compared to 1976 when this aired you know of course the big reveal of goff was at the end of the episode the third episode as as the the hunter but there were scenes where the light was just right, where you could see his face clearly through the mask. Mm-hmm. Right. That he was the covering that he was wearing. But of course, in 76, again, the TVs would better than they would have been in 63, but they still were not that clear that you probably would not have been able to tell very right. easily then. Yeah. They didn't uh, have high def. Yep. That's true. Like even, you know, transferring the old film to high def, you're still yeah. getting better, a better view. Yeah. I was and, wondering like why it was such a big, big deal. Like I figured it was goth. Ages ago, why is well, it a big and, reveal and, now? Yeah. And not just high def; they didn't have sixty-five inch standard definition <laughs> TVs. Like yeah. I've got a sixty-five inch high definition TV on my wall. Sure, you know, sure. so you know, you're watching on you know, figure twenty inch something along that lines in your right. living room. You're not going to be, you're not going to have the resolution to see what was going on. But it's still kind of funny that difference in you know, what's this fifty years almost? Yeah, that is true. That's a good point. Like how watching this stuff now. Even though it was made using that old technology, we still have a we're having a better viewing experience than people then would have had. So uh, that's interesting. Jimmy, any final thoughts? So um, in for once, we actually see the master get away um, mm-hmm. after Tom Baker leaves. 
Spandrel and Ingen are looking at the Master's TARDIS, which is in the form of a grandfather clock. It starts to activate. They see we we get a glimpse. We only see the master's hand, but um, but they see the master step into his TARDIS. We see his hand closing the TARDIS door, and then it the his TARDIS starts to 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 beam out, and we see the master's face in uh, superimposed on the clock face. Yep, and he is noticeably, and this was deliberate. He is noticeably less decayed. So he's no longer burned. He is still physically deformed. He's got the big googly eyes, but mm-hmm. he's no longer burned in the same way. And so he was able, and I think there's a line of dialogue about this where Tom Baker says he, you know, he could have, this could have happened. Um, but he, he partially repaired himself. It, with the energy he was able to siphon off from the Eye of mm-hmm. Harmony. And they were going to continue playing with this. Uh, he was going to, uh, he was going, he was originally scheduled to be the final villain in the Talons of Wang Chiang in the next mm. season, who is also a deformed guy from the future. And there are even traces of the original master reveal in the script. Because the guy who's ultimately revealed as a dictator from the 51st century named uh, Magnus Greel. And we get to see his face, and he's deformed too, in a different way, but he's deformed. And earlier, before the reveal of Magnus Greel, they established that whoever is impersonating Wang Chiang, who's a Chinese god, um, has a time cabinet. Mm-hmm. And 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 at one point, uh, Wang Chiang gets Leela in his power and says, "Ah, a a morsel to feed my regeneration." Mm. Uh. And those are lines left over from when the plan was to have the villain be the master, but the showrunner thought it was too soon to have the master back, so mm-hmm. they they changed the villain to Magnus Greel. And then when they finally do bring, and they had planned when they did bring the master back for him to not be as decayed, but when, at the end of Tom Baker's run, when they bring him back in the Keeper of Trocken, the the mask that, um, uh, that no, that uh, Peter, um, blanking on his last name, Pratt. Uh, Pratt, yeah, the mask oh, that right. the mask that Peter Pratt is wearing here was no longer in good shape, and so mm-hmm. they they came up with a new decayed master look. He doesn't have the googly eyes, but they painted his face black, and they also painted teeth on his lips, so <laughs> it would be a little more expressive. Yeah, um, but uh, but they came up with the the new look for Christopher Beavers. Okay. So and so that's the the deadly assassin, um, which uh, we we've watched. And so and, that and that's yeah. what you want if you're yeah. hiring an assassin. You want him to be a deadly assassin. Yeah. The non deadly version is clearly <laughs> inferior as assassins yeah. go. Yeah. You, yes. you don't want an incompetent assassin. You don't want a mildly wounding assassin. You want a deadly assassin. <laughs> it's the annoying assassin. <laughs> mm. All right. <laughs> 
Uh, let's uh, wrap things up there. We'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Debbie L., Jeffrey K., Anne H., Randy W., and Mary K. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. We'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edited this episode. So that's it from us. We'd love to hear what you think of this fourth Doctor story, The Deadly Assassin. You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or send an email to Who at sqpn.com, or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. You can watch The Secrets of Doctor Who in full video on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash starquestmedia, where you should also make sure to hit the bell to get notifications. And we'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the 12th Doctor story, Last Christmas. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing The Secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thank you, Dom. And for this episode, 9 out of 10. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you, sir. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, vaporization without representation is against the Constitution. (laughs) 